This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Drugs, lies, and laptops. Will the Biden family business finally be exposed for what it is? Well, it's about damn time. The show starts now. So for years now, the big guy, Joe Brandon, has maintained he knew nothing about his son's business dealings. He wasn't involved in the business dealings. He didn't profit from the business dealings. Let's take a trip down memory lane for those who, like Joe, may suffer from convenient amnesia. Have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I did my job. I never discussed a single thing with my son about anything having to do with Ukraine. No one has indicated I have. We've always kept everything separate. Even when my son was the attorney general of the state of Delaware, we never discussed anything. So there'd be no potential conflict. First of all, I, I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. Oh, the Democrats and members of the mainstream media really don't want that supercut of lies getting out there to the general public, which is probably why they're conveniently pretending it doesn't exist. But too bad, the Internet is forever, and so are those sound bites, really encapsulating the Biden legacy. But now that we have even more evidence to literally trip over more testimony from business associates, whistleblowers, and watchdogs, well, there's another person with a lot of explaining to do. You ready to get hooked on phonics as KJP plays with semantics? Roll it. Curious if the White House and the president still stand behind his comment that he's never been involved and has never even uh, spoken to his son about his business. So I've been, I've been asked this question a million times. The answer is not going to change. The answer remains the same. The president ha was never in business with his son. I just don't have anything else to add. <laughs> you see how it went from never spoken to his son about business dealings to never in business with? That was a slick move, but uh, you're not fooling us. We aren't stupid. Well, most of us anyway. The water is rising as the Biden boat full of BS tries to stay afloat. So batten down the hatches. Joining me now is the journalist who broke the Hunter laptop story, Breitbart News political editor, Emma Jo Morris. It's great to have you on such a slow news day. I can't imagine what there is to talk about. Yeah, it's uh... a... <laughs> I can't keep up. You know, I'm here at the Young America's Foundation uh, conference, and I feel like every time I look away because I have to do something, I'm coming back to some explosion um, on my website. <laughs> yeah. Now, again, this is evolving, but I have to get to the latest breaking news with you, and that's that sweetheart plea deal of uh, your good friend, Hunter Biden. <laughs> you guys know each other close at this point, I'm sure. Um, but that plea deal falling apart, and reportedly it's because he would have received some sort of immunity and the judge wasn't okay with that, which leads me to believe, and you could give more insight into this than I could, that there's something bigger here that's going to be breaking or a bigger piece of this puzzle that's you know, far worse than tax evasion or the, the firearm possession that could possibly be on the horizon for Hunter and maybe even the big guy. If you were to speculate, what do you think this has to do with? 
Well, so there's a lot of, so at the time that we are recording this, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of claims flying around. So I feel very cautious about talking about it right now because it is developing at the moment that we're speaking. But um, what I'm hearing is a couple things. Um, the last I heard most definitively was that they have agreed to a plea deal, but it's n more narrow in scope. It's apparently only dealing with the gun crime, the taxes, um, but but is leaving open um, pursuit of FARA violations. Um, again, like this is just developing now. So I don't feel like I feel about as equipped as you to discuss it, you know, because I'm not in the hearing, obviously. Uh, but um, this is a, a against the backdrop of a revelation from last night, which was that Hunter Biden's lawyers essentially tried to deceive the court. Um, and they tried to get something struck, I think, basically from the record uh, by impersonating a staffer from the Hill. Uh, so this sounds serious. Again, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not there so that I have to caveat everything I say with that. You know, I'm just kind of opining just like anybody else. But um, yeah, so so that doesn't sound good. The judge seems pissed. Also, the lawyers are trying to get um, Hunter some sort of deal where he can never be prosecuted for anything basically ever again if he agrees to these crimes, which is like, so the judge is feeling um, apprehensive about accepting that because obviously, like, the, you can't promise that it's not double jeopardy. It's not prosecuting for the same crime again. They're trying to get out of being prosecuted for any crime ever again. Right. So this whole thing is basically the moral of the story is it's it's kind of imploding. Um, they're now trying to throw in a lot of new elements to the deal that were never agreed on. And we can't really agree on what we originally agreed on, apparently, last week. Yeah, that Biden legal team, the Hunter Biden legal team, any Biden legal team for that matter, you know, uh, the balls on that team, large. I mean, they've got a lot of nerve, <laughs> the things that they have tried to pull. But I want to go back to, you know, the the origination of all of this. And uh, I think that you are the perfect person to break this down for me. And that's the Hunter laptop that we've known about now for quite some time. The media is finally starting to come around to the idea that, in fact, this is real. But you're the one that broke this story. You're the one that did a lot of the legwork in this. So now that you've watched this all evolve, do you feel like that you've had a personal hand to play in what could potentially be the unraveling of the Biden crime family as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the laptop from hell aside from Peter Schweitzer's work, which is incredible, but the laptop from hell was really the first glimpse that we actually got into the Bidens unfiltered and what is going on in that orbit that is shrouded in secrecy because it's the son, it's not the father. So we don't have the right to that information. Well, we we ripped that information out of them. And and obviously, you know, what we reported at the Post, what I, I authored um, in those stories has been horrific. You know, 10% for the big guy, I think, is a line that will live in infamy um, because it just really finally, finally um, let us see what we were all speculating was true, which was that Hunter is not a solo operator. He's a bag man. And we knew that, but we didn't like... We knew it instinctively, but we didn't have the documentation for it. And then all of a sudden it was right there on this guy's computer. And uh, the the left, the media, legacy media and Democrats, um, you know, I testified about this on in the weaponization hearing last week. Um, they try to say that, oh, my sources were political, therefore the story is political. And it's like, first of all, if you're saying that, you know, Tommy, you don't know me well, but listen, I'm I'm about... 
I'm about the story. I'm about the content. I don't care really about ideology. That's not what who I am, you know. So if I got Don Jr.'s laptop from a Democrat on the on the weaponization committee, I would I would run it if it looked the same as Hunter's. That's first of all. And second of all, as per as to the sourcing, it's the source, every source is going to have a motivation for what they do. Um, it's usually not out of purity and virtue. You know, I tweeted about this and and I, mm-hmm. I think it's important to reiterate that sources have their own motives and that's okay. That's fine. As long as the journalist has the entire story and it's true and it's newsworthy, there's no rule of journalism that says that you can't run a story because the po- source is political. That's absurd. <laughs> Um, you know, and I always give this example of the Trump tax returns, which were mailed anonymously to the New York Times. Um, and they ran them because they were able to authenticate them somehow. And and we don't even know who that source is, let alone trying to understand their motivation, um, which I'm sure wasn't because they they love Trump, you know. <laughs> so, but if you're able to, if you're able to authenticate the material, that's all that matters is the truth. When you happened upon all of this and that laptop and the images, a lot of uh, images, by the way, that probably seared your eyeballs irreparably, I can't imagine the things that you have seen. But when you stumbled upon all of this, did you know that this was going to be big? And second question to that, can you believe the carelessness of somebody like a Hunter Biden? I mean, son of the vice president, now son of the current president, how careless he was with that laptop, with the things he was saying and sending and putting out there. I mean, I know the man has a history of drug abuse, but this seems brazen even for somebody like a Hunter Biden. Yeah, so I'll take your second question first and then I'll get to your first one. Um, uh, so... <laughs> I couldn't believe the story when I was originally told it by my sources. I couldn't believe it. And I called, I know a guy who, I, I got my, the story from Bannon and Rudy. And I know a guy who worked for Bannon at the time. And, and I'd known him for years. And that was how I kind of got in touch with all these guys. And um, I called him up and I was like, you guys are telling me that I'm supposed to believe that the son of the president of the United States, or sorry, at the time, the, the Democratic candidate for president, um, left his computer filled with incriminating evidence of corruption in a laptop store in Wilmington. And and how do I believe this? Like, just tell me the real story because I think you're lying to me. And he's like, he goes, Emma, you know, you grew up in a nice neighborhood. I didn't grow up in a nice neighborhood and I knew crackheads growing up and you didn't. And I'm going to tell you right now, this guy's addicted to crack. And that's just how this works. They forget things, places. It's very hard for them to lead day-to-day life. And that was the thing that kind of made me realize it's like, no, this is a drug abuse problem. That's all. That's what it is, is this guy couldn't get it together and he forgot something important um, and it ended up in the hands of the press. That's your first question. Um, To your second question about, um, sorry, uh, so sorry, that was your first question. And and your other question was... um, was sorry remind me now I had an uh, what you thought what your what your reaction was when you saw oh yes yeah. so okay so I have an anecdote for you um when I was negotiating this story and getting the laptop from Rudy um he didn't want to give me the full laptop he wanted to give me like like certain documents and I was like I am not accepting that I need the full thing or I'm not running with this at all uh, because again, there is a political motive. So I have to have the full contents of the hard drive because I need to see the full story. And he's kind of trying to argue with me. And and this is already after I had seen the laptop, but I didn't have it. 
And I said, I said to him, like, why, like, if you don't give me this story, I'm not doing it. And like, I, I'm not doing it piecemeal. And he says, I, okay, I need you to promise me four covers of the New York Post and I'll give it to you. And I thought that was so funny because I had already seen it. So I said to him, if this is everything we think it is, you can have 20 covers of the New York Post. Just give me that computer. And that was how I got it. Because God, I knew that if I would get into that thing, we were going to find things that were going to change the world. And they probably would have changed an election had you not been censored to the extent that you were. So I want to get into that. I know that there was the big tech censorship hearing last week. A lot of things going on, a lot of censorship happening, not only with the Hunter Biden laptop story, but we know with COVID, I was personally targeted by the Biden White House for reduction on Facebook. So there's a lot when it comes to censorship. But I know that this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg, the Hunter Biden laptop story, COVID, all of this. When you look at big tech censorship as a whole, what do you think the biggest issue is? And is the Elon takeover of Twitter, is that helping? Is it enough? Where do we go from here? Well, this is a really complex issue that, you know, we're going to you're going to have to uh, take me for dinner next time I'm in Nashville to, to get into that fully because it's too much for one segment. But it, as to the censorship that you experienced and as to the censorship that I experienced, um, I can give you probably a succinct answer to that, which is, in my opinion, um, there is just a, a really incestuous relationship between the intelligence community slash government and social media companies. And because we have a system where there's a couple companies that basically control all of the public square as as the virtual public square goes. Um, it's 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 just basically a couple executives, a handful of executives that have control over everything that we're talking about and also all the angles that editors are using to frame stories in the news. And they have a very, very close relationship with government. And even further than that, that actually there is almost like a symbiosis between the government and social media companies. I'm working on a story because I got so much attention to one line that I used in my um, testimony to Congress last week, where I said there's still hundreds of people from the intelligence community who are working in social media companies. And that is what's going on, is that not only are these two entities working together, but they're actually trading staff. And there is a lot of people from the CIA, from the DNI, from the FBI, who are working at Twitter, Facebook, Meta, and uh, and Google. And so we we have a situation here where we have basically these like um, arbiters of truth in these social media companies. Oh, and by the way, they all come from the government. And when they don't actually work at the social media companies, they have, as we learned from Elon Musk, you know, uh, the virtual war room where they all have like a group chat on an encrypted network together. Um, they're getting security clearances from the government so that they can share all kinds of information with these social media companies. And then aside from that, they're laundering their narratives through an obedient press um, to then present to social media companies and say, look how serious this issue is. It's written about in the New York Times. Where did that story come from? The same guy. When we had the Twitter files, we learned a lot, uh, a lot, a lot. If you were to speculate on what a meta slash Facebook slash Instagram file bank would look like, do you speculate that it was much worse than what was happening over at Twitter and that it is still occurring, by the way, since we never really got any transparency from Zuckerberg or any of the rest of them? I think it's probably equally bad everywhere because here's the thing that the social media companies in their defense, this is the position they're in. They are in a weird 
spot where they're not exactly publishers, but they're not exactly platforms. And those two terms have very different legal definitions. And because of all the hysteria about national security threats, disinformation, whatever, and then, you know, you have real crimes that go on on these platforms. Obviously, there's all kinds of sharing of information and some of it is illegal. Um, they, they, they're in a very precarious position and they're very worried about regulated, being regulated um, or being investigated. And that's never fun for any company. Um, so, so they feel like, I think they feel like they're up against a wall because on the one hand, they they probably are obviously liberal Democrats and they probably do agree with a lot of the things that the um, establishment Democratic Party pushes, which is the same things that the security state kind of pursues. But on the other hand, they probably feel like they can't push back too much on government interference into their business because they're worried that there's going to be regulations that are put down against them that create compliance um, issues and and just create a headache for them uh, legally. So I think that's probably what's going on, um, you know, at all these guys. They're in the same position. They don't want to be regulated. It's just so hard for me to believe, though, because I get what you're saying, but if that were true and the government had an interest in shutting down black markets, shutting down real national security threats uh, like ISIS that was active on platforms for many years or wanted to shut down pedophilia and child pornography, the big tech companies don't seem to be too concerned with being regulated in that vein because it's still occurring. But they seem very concerned with people like me saying I'm not going to get a COVID vaccine. You know, I understand the the fear of being regulated, but it's just it's like. You know, when we're looking at the scope of what's dangerous to our country and to our our, our globe, I don't think me saying I'm not going to get a vaccine ranks up there with child trafficking. So to me, I think you're right that it's liberal Democrats and they take their, you know, their orders from people that they agree with, because I don't think a Trump administration would tell them to censor things. And I don't think that they would so happily run it down as they do under a Biden regime. And I think that's what's so frustrating with all this. Well, that's it. I've said that you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I've said that a thousand times where it's like I could kind of sort of maybe get with uh, law enforcement being like crawling around social media companies to that extent if they were really busting up terror organizations, child porn proliferators. But that's not what's going on because, you know, up until I don't know what the data is while Elon Musk is in power, but up until Elon Musk, let's say Twitter was one of the main proliferators of child porn. Mm-hmm. While they had a Slack channel called BU Alumni, Bureau Alumni, as as in the FBI Bureau. Um, so so um yeah, you're exactly right. It's so disingenuous and fake. It's like, yeah, um, you know, law enforcement is good, security, whatever. No. This is not about law enforcement and security. Obviously, this is about this is about um, censoring speech that's verboten. Yeah. And that's contrary to the narrative that they want to push so badly. Well, Emma, Mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much for everything that you've done. I think that you're a national hero. I hope that you keep it up on on both sides of the aisle, because I think we need good journalists like you out there uncovering all the rats and swamp creatures, wherever they may be on the right or on the left. So thanks for all that you do. And we're looking forward to see your reporting ahead of 2024 election season. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, we're hemorrhaging billions to Ukraine. And if you're a little sus as to where it's all going and how efficient the bookkeeping is, well, you're not alone. Good thing I brought in an expert. Open the book CEO and founder Adam Andriofsky joins me next. 
Thus far, we've sent $113 billion over to our tracksuited friend Zelensky in Ukraine, and it doesn't look like the money train will be stopping anytime soon. But whether you fly that Ukraine flag next to your pride flag or not, you deserve to know how this money is being spent, even if you don't care and get a kick out of watching your tax dollars burn. And same thing goes for the IRS. I bet you didn't know that since 2006, the IRS spent $35.2 million on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. Yes, tens of millions in weapons for the Internal Revenue Service. Something isn't adding up here, so let's bring in Open the Book CEO and founder Adam Angiofsky with what you need to know. Adam, I'm so excited to have you and get into the books here. Well, it's great to be on the program, Tommy. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. Well, I have a lot to get into, but I want to start with Ukraine, because this, out of all the issues as of recently, has been the one that's been burning my behind the most. So I know that your organization is doing a lot of bookkeeping work, a lot of looking into the bookkeeping and the dollars and cents of all this. But just to give my audience an overview, what do they need to know about our government, our tax dollars, and what we're spending in places like, I don't know, Ukraine? Yeah, it's a great question. So first off, I think everyone needs to know that your corner grocery store has better in-house financial accounting controls than the United States military. Tommy, they just misstated the amount of Ukraine aid to the tune of $6.2 billion. They blew their accounting on what was given to Ukraine first a couple of months ago, they admitted they were off by $3 billion. Then they had to restate that number all the way up to $6.2 billion. So it feels like that's a really odd mistake to make, a, a very odd oversight. You know, you'd think, I, I understand it's the government. You know, I don't expect them to be necessarily on top of their game, but that's a whole lot of money to overvalue. So I'm wondering when we look at all this spending and where it's going, does your organization have concerns that the money that we're sending over there is going over there for its intended purpose and that the bookkeeping on that side is keeping up with what we're sending and we can actually track what our tax dollars are being used for? No, I don't have confidence in that. Let's put the $113 billion, Tommy, in context. So the entire estimated military budget of China is a little over $200 billion. The estimated budget for Russia of their military is $80 billion. We've given Ukraine $113 billion worth of U.S. taxpayer money in terms of aid. It's a tremendous amount of money. And I'd feel a heck of a lot better with it if the Pentagon could just pass their audit. As you know, the Pentagon, Trump forced the Pentagon for the first time in history to undergo an audit. It's 1,600 auditors. Every single year since 2018, they spend about a half billion dollars of U.S. taxpayer money doing the audit of the Pentagon. And for five straight years, the Pentagon has flunked the audit. So what does that mean? Are there any consequences for something like that? Because it doesn't feel like it. And, and if, if there are, the average American like myself is unaware of any repercussions that would happen with them essentially wasting taxpayer dollars or not accounting for taxpayer dollars the way that we would expect, given the fact that we're hemorrhaging it to organizations and to different entities like the Pentagon. Is there anything that's done when they, when they overspend or they miscalculate like they have been doing? Well, they say they're going to do better next year. So that's that's what the uh, spokespeople always say after they flunk the audit. But I want to give you a, a real-time example of waste at the Pentagon. Because right now, we're putting about 
$830 billion into fiscal year 2024 into the Department of Defense. And so there, there is bloat there. For example, there's a recent government audit that showed that three quarters of their office space is not being used because the Biden administration is allowing everyone to phone it in to do remote work. Okay, so we took a look at how much money the Pentagon during 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic spent on furniture. Like nobody's in the office, Tommy. They spent over $800 million in those two years purchasing new furniture for folks that are not even using it. Furniture, I mean, even if people were using it, that would still burn my behind to know that they're spending my tax dollars on furniture. I mean, drive down any inner city or any major city for that matter in America, and these cities are in shambles. People are living in tents along the freeways in every California major city, and they're spending that kind of money furnishing offices. I mean, that to me would infuriate Americans if they were aware. The last time we did an audit of their end of year use it or lose it spending. So this is spending in the last 30 days of the year where the Pentagon spends down their budget this year to get the same or more money from Congress in the following year. We found that in the last week of the fiscal year, the Pentagon blew out one out of every 10 contracts in the last seven days of the fiscal year. We found that they spent nearly $5 million on lobster and snow crab. They bought a $9,300 club leather chair. They spent a million dollars on PBR, the Professional Bull Riders Association. They blew out a hundred and they blew out $150,000 on public relations PR contracts. I this mean, is no way to run the the world's finest military. No, and imagine what those resources could be used for and what they potentially would need to be used for. And then let's also imagine the people that are on the front lines actually putting their lives on the line and the measly paychecks that they and their families receive and the compensation they receive. And then you've got people spending $1,000 on a freaking chair. I mean, I think that would infuriate most Americans. And, and look, the money that's going into Ukraine, $113 billion, you know, I kind of believe, now I don't believe this, but I kind of believe that the establishment, the powers that be, think that's only a small down payment on what's to come. And I'm gonna use for my evidence the 20 years worth of taxpayer money that flowed into Afghanistan. About seven times that amount flowed into Afghanistan over the course of 20 years. And when Biden pulled out on the hasty withdrawal, they left behind up to 600,000 weapons, 75,000 military vehicles, including a thousand uh, uh, mine-resistant vehicles, 25,000 Humvees. We left behind 16, 000, up to 16,000 pieces of night vision equipment. So Tommy, if we ever go back into Afghanistan, it's going to come at a significant cost to our national treasure, the lives of men and women. We've lost the nighttime advantage. It'll come at a significant cost to our fighting forces. And I think you're right about Ukraine. I think that they're just going to keep sending and sending and sending. I don't think that there's going to be an end to any of this. And a lot of the people in the military industrial complex or those that receive donations from those in the military industrial complex, they don't want it to end anytime soon. And that's what's so infuriating about all this. And I have a lot I want to get to the IRS next. But before that, 
I still want to just get a, a brief Cliff Notes version of COVID spending because I can imagine that your organization was very busy finding all the accounting errors that came along with our COVID spending. Give me, you know, the Cliff Notes version of what you guys found in that. So COVID spending, it is the largest public fraud in the history of the country. Tommy, over the course of the past three years, nearly every single federal program was either legally gamed by the insiders or illegally defrauded. You know, up to $600 billion of COVID aid has been stolen by criminals, crime artists, and crime syndicates from around the world. But you also have the, the federal programs that were legally gamed. For example, we studied the 300 largest law firms in the country, and 126 of them took nearly a billion dollars worth of forgiven paycheck protection program loans. These PPP loans, they were designed for mom and pop businesses on Main Street. Those men and women who had, who had their businesses shut down during the economic lockdown, it was never a program for the largest, most profitable law firms in the country whose, whose partners were knocking down equity payments during the pandemic years consistently for over a million dollars a piece. They have no, uh, they had no economic hardship claim to nearly a billion dollars worth of forgiven PPP loans. Yeah, I mean, what a stupid time in American history. I can't imagine all the money that's still floating out there. I mean, we know in California, you've got prisoners and inmates and dead people that took advantage of, of COVID dollars. So I can't imagine if we even it could have a magnifying glass. I don't think we could find all of the wasted COVID spending, uh, which brings me to our next point. The IRS, and then interestingly, which I haven't heard from a lot of other outlets beyond yours, the militarization of the IRS. There's been a lot of discussion about the IRS because we know that they want to hire tens of thousands of more agents, which makes a lot of Americans very uncomfortable. But the spending over at the IRS, and particularly on this type of equipment, I think that would also surprise most Americans. So let's get into that. So, Tommy, we're the subject matter experts on the militarization of all the federal agencies, but specifically the IRS, since I published an editorial at the Wall Street Journal in 2016, and we just updated our numbers. So $35.2 million on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment was purchased by the IRS since 2006. Overall, there's 103 federal agencies that have purchased $3.7 billion since 2006 in guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. And if you break that down, it's 27 traditional law enforcement agencies under the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security, but it's 76 rank-and-file traditional regulatory civil agencies like Health and Human Services, like the Social Security Administration, the Department of Education, the Department of Transportation, uh, and the IRS that have purchased millions of dollars worth of the gear. That just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I'm missing something, but could you give me a little context as to why an organization like the IRS would need military equipment, especially that large amount of military equipment? I mean, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's true. Well, it is true. Let's break down their pre-pandemic gun locker at the IRS. So ahead of the pandemic, they, they had 4,500 weapons in their gun locker and they had stockpiled 5 million rounds of ammunition. The gun locker was comprised of over 600 shotguns, over 500 long barrel rifles. Those were uh, AR-15 Smith & Wesson long barrel rifles, and even 15 
submachine guns. Tommy, the IRS has over 2,100 special agents. The head count of the IRS special agent is now coming up on and approximating that, approximating that of a U.S. Army battalion. Where is it written that the IRS should have a battalion? <laughs> I think a lot of Americans are going to be pretty ticked off when they hear this. I wish I had all day to talk about this because I'm sure there's so much government waste that's going on and I think that it would absolutely make my blood boil. It already is. It'd probably give me some heartburn on top of that. But thank you, Adam, for everything that you guys do. I get your emails. I follow you guys. I try to keep my audience up to date on everything that you guys are doing and thank goodness for you guys blowing the whistle on all of this because the American people deserve to know and I'm going to make sure I get the word out in any way I can. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you very much. And I'll talk to you soon because I'm sure that the government waste isn't going to be ending anytime soon. So we'll get back into it and dig into some more Ukraine numbers after we send another $20 billion. <laughs> Thanks so much, Adam. Coming up, the Democrats have a Joe problem on their hands, but more so than that, they have a Kamala problem. And I'll explain next in my final thoughts. The Democrats, and well, the Democrats who make up the mainstream media, well, they are still covering for Joe, but not because they think he's innocent and not because they particularly enjoy being saddled with him. I'll tell you the real reason, because it's time for Final Thoughts. WhatsApps, emails, FBI, FD, 1023, suspicious activity reports, bank statements, whistleblowers, and two former business associates. Yeah, it's not looking too good for Joe Biden. Now, Democrats may try to convince you and themselves that there's no there there, but even they know better than that. If dodging Biden corruption evidence was an Olympic sport, these liberals would win gold. Trump got impeached over a fake dossier and then impeached again over a flippin' phone call, so certainly there's enough evidence to impeach Joe at this point. Shoot, the money and paper trails following that guy around make Hillary's emails look like jaywalking. But speaking of old Hillary, are y'all noticing that as much as the DNC and mainstream media members shielded her, it's nothing compared to the cushion job they're performing on the big guy? And why is that, do you think? Well, for me, it's obvious. The Democrat Party does not want Joe. Polls show us that. They know he's too old and too crooked to run for president in 2024, and they really wish they could unload him, but they can't. Not yet. Why? Because they still have a Kamala problem, y'all. Democrats are still circling the wagons around Joe because they haven't convinced either of them to step aside for Gavin yet. If they let it rip on Joe like I highly suspect they want to, then they're going to be in an even worse spot having to run Kamala in 2024. There is no one worse to run in 2024 than Kamala Harris, except for Hillary. That's it. She's the only thing worse than Kamala. So they've got to keep covering for Joe. they got to keep pretending it's normal for nine Biden family members, including a grandchild, to receive millions from foreign entities. They simply have no choice because the only other option, at least till she's bought off somehow, is to wheelbarrow Kamala to the top of the ticket. Kamala is Joe's insurance policy, but not for the reasons we initially thought. You know, if liberals weren't so feral, I'd really feel badly for them. But for now, I'll just pull up a seat and watch the train wreck. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.